0: People love stories. That's why we read books. That's why we watch Hollywood movies. If we, as filmmakers, as documentary makers, and journalists, can give them that compelling story, I think there'll always be an audience.
1: Welcome back to the Dyson House podcast from the Australian Institute of International Affairs in Victoria. My name is Thenu Herath. I'm your host. And today I will be talking to none other than Karishma Vyas, the 2018 Walkley Freelance Journalist of the Year. Karishma is an Emmy nominated Australian journalist and filmmaker who has covered conflict across Asia for almost 20 years. As an international reporter, she has been featured on the likes of Al Jazeera, Time Magazine and the New York Times as well. Most recently, her work has been featured on ABC's Foreign Correspondent, where she told a poignant story of the coronavirus pandemic in New York City. Today, Krishma joins me straight from New York to not only talk about her intriguing career, but also issues surrounding press freedom, fake news and representation in the international media. Thanks for making the time to speak to us today, Krishma. I know it's a little bit difficult with the time differences. Oh no worries. I, I appreciate your time. <laughs> so you're based in New York. What is it like over there at the moment?
0: Um, it's pretty grim. Um, you know, the streets are quite empty and they have been for several weeks um because of the COVID lockdown. And we are starting to see some improvement in the number of infections and the number of deaths, but they're still extraordinarily high and so we still don't know really when, you know, this lockdown is going to be lifted and and what kind of normal we're going to return to even after it's lifted. So it's, you know, feels pretty unpredictable at the moment.
1: As an international reporter, Karishma, you've told some incredibly powerful stories throughout the years. However, I'd like to begin this episode by delving a little bit more into your own story. You mentioned in a recent webinar that we ran that you have wanted to become a journalist from about the age of 12. What exactly was it about this industry that drew you to it from such a young age?
0: I always wanted to travel. Um, I found that experience incredibly fascinating and You know, coming from an immigrant background, I moved to Australia when I was eight with my family from a pretty small town in India to Melbourne. And I just found the experience so remarkable. Like, you know, as an eight-year-old, you just don't really understand how big the world is and how different and diverse it is. And so you know, from that early experience, it really got me hooked to discovering what else is out there, you know, what else beyond what I know. Um, And so that led me into
1: the path to journalism. You've worked for a number of news agencies now, including Al Jazeera, Channel 4 in the UK, and Reuters as well. What drew you to freelancing after all of this?
0: Well, I had um, really started my career in the wire business, so my first real job as a journalist was with Reuters News Agency in Bangkok as a television producer, and it's the best training ground, I think, because the deadlines are relentless. You have to still meet the high standards of accuracy, thorough reporting, fact-checking, Um and so it was fantastic to get that foundation in journalism, um, and but from there, I really wanted to dive deeper into stories. Um, the relentless news cycle doesn't give you much opportunity to investigate thoroughly. That takes time, and it takes resources. And so when I had, you know, been working for the wires for a number of years, and I felt that I had a really strong grounding in the basics of reporting, what I really wanted to do was use those skills and delve deeper into the stories that I was covering um, and to try and do more justice, I guess, to the people that I was reporting on, to the issues that I was reporting on. And so the only way I could really do that at the time was to um, do it as a freelancer and pitch stories and pitch ideas um, to networks who were already doing that kind of work. So that's
1: where I really, you know, felt compelled to start freelancing. When you're telling these stories, especially in times of crises, how do you get people to open up to you? I'm talking specifically about the recent piece you completed in New York about the pandemic. When I was watching it a couple of weeks ago, I particularly remember being amazed by the, amount of detail these people were willing to share in quite hectic times
0: I mean to be honest it's I know it's probably better if I give a very complicated nuanced answer but in reality you just have to ask people and you have to give them the time to tell you know to tell their stories it's amazing how we go through this world without really asking even the people that we know really well how was that for you? What did it feel like? Are you okay? You know, what are you worried about? We go through our lives without asking these most basic questions to the people that are closest to us. And so what I found in my experience is that um, when you ask people these fundamental questions, they're more than willing to give you the answers to them, because it's not often that they get asked these questions. Um, The other part of That is sometimes it is easier talking to a stranger about the things that are worrying you than it is your, you know, family members or your close friends, because oftentimes we don't want to burden them. We don't want them to worry about us. And so when a stranger comes along and you don't have to really worry, about, you know, burdening them with your problems um, because they're not, you know, I'm not their mum, I'm not their brother or sister. I'm just somebody who's genuinely interested in knowing what they're going through. I think people give themselves permission to be a lot more honest
1: than they perhaps would with, you know, people who are much closer to them than I am. Mm, and I suppose this emotional investment can only really manifest when there is in-depth storytelling. What do you believe is the place of long-form journalism in an era that is perhaps defined more by fast and free news? The stories that you can
0: invest time in, in investigating, in um, going, actually, you know, doing the boots on the ground kind of reporting work, Um, I think you always go away you know knowing something that you didn't go that you didn't know going into you know the story so i think there is a market i think people certainly have short, shorter attention spans they certainly have less time to sit down and maybe watch a 30 minute or a 1 hour documentary um but i think it's a much more rewarding experience for people that do i mean look at the impact a documentary like forsama had you know, mm-hmm. it made it all the way to the Oscars. And I personally found it an incredibly visceral experience, um, watching that film. You know, it, it does change you from the inside. And so that's, that's always the aim. Um, and I think there'll always be a place for that because at the end of the day, people love stories. That's why we read books. That's why we watch Hollywood movies. Um, And that's why, you know, a lot of people watch documentaries. And if we as filmmakers, as documentary makers and journalists can give them that compelling story, I think they'll always be an audience.
1: What happens when people start losing trust in these stories? I'm talking specifically, of course, about the current political trend in the U.S. especially, to discredit journalists for a lot of their reporting?
0: I don't think it's a new thing. I mean, when I was in journalism school 20 years ago, you know, we, we were given uh, the results of a survey in terms of, you know, which professions are the most trustworthy. And I think journalists were right down the bottom along with used car salesmen. So that's basically, you know, an issue that has dogged our industry for a very long time. But, you know, at the same time, the the same goes in our industry that if nobody likes what you're doing, it means you're doing a good job. So our job isn't to be likable. Um, people, you know, are not going to like it when we investigate wrongdoing that they've been involved in, when we investigate corruption. Um, you know, when we uncover things that people don't want the public or the government, or anybody else to know about. So, you know, our job isn't to be likable, but it's certainly important to be trusted. And I think in America particularly what i found is that the media is so polarised along political lines that that is what has contributed in um, a great level of distrust of journalists um, and the news media. Because if you start off by having a political agenda you know, by favouring Democrats over Republicans or a certain political ideology over another, then you're obviously going to alienate people who may not subscribe to that political ideal. So I think um, it's more important than ever for journalists to practice the, the most foundational principle of being apolitical. I mean, you know... We, as individuals, we're still people. And so, of course, we have political preferences. Of course, we have our own opinions about what the government is doing or whether we like the current prime minister or president or we don't. But at the end of the day, that can't leak into our reporting. Um, I often tell people, especially here in America, because they do distrust journalists so much, is that I approach my job very much like a doctor would approach their patients. You know, they might, a doctor might not particularly like a patient that walks in to their, um, office, but at the end of the day, it's their job to treat that patient to the best of their ability, um, and make sure that, you know, they take care of whatever problem that they have. In the same fashion as a journalist, I might not like a particular government personally. I might not want to vote for them, but it's my job to, um, cover them as accurately, you know, as possible and while, you know, thoroughly fact-checking everything that I report on um, and not manipulating facts to, to suit my personal political agenda. Um, and so, you know, that is one side of the story. The other side is I think the audience bears a responsibility um, to some extent as well. You can't um, get your news, your information from untrustworthy sources and then blame the media for being um, biased, you know. You you have to do your due diligence in making sure that the sources that you get your news from are reputable news organisations, um, organisations that have a legacy of fact-checking, of reporting accurately, reporting apolitically. So, you know, right now with the amount of technology out there, anybody and everybody is able to say that they are a journalist or, or whoever and put out stories, it doesn't mean that they're accurate. It doesn't mean that they adhere to the same editorial guidelines that I do. So as somebody that's a consumer of news, it is your responsibility too to make sure that you're getting um you know, your information from the, the most reliable
1: sources. And what can members of the general public do to ensure that this happens, that they are getting their information from the most reliable sources?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a matter of um, doing your research, you know, if you, if, and also, you know, legacy news organisations, there's still a lot to be said for them. You know, newspapers like um, The Guardian, The New York Times, the Washington Post, you know, I know that um, a lot of people have accused the New York Times, for example, of, of having an anti-Trump bias, um, and that might be true to some extent, but there's plenty of news organisations out there that don't, as I mean, that don't necessarily have liberal leanings. So, you know, the Wall Street Journal um, is known to have the opposite kind of leaning, it is a conservative newspaper, so the thing is, you, you get your information from a variety of sources. The days of relying on just one news media are long behind us, and I think very few of us still do rely on on the one, you know, news outlet for all of our news. So I think you need to kind of expand um, the sources from which you get your, your news from. And... You know, make up your own mind at the end of the day. We're all going to have um, our political leanings. You know, there are going to be policies that the government introduces that don't get covered well in the news media, but you're really happy with because it benefits you. You know, certain tax cuts benefit you, and so you're happy with the government for doing that. I I would say don't shut off um, uh, a news organisation or don't stop reading... A newspaper just because it doesn't reflect your own bias. I think that's a really dangerous thing to do um, because what it does it makes us increasingly intolerant to views that don't um, reflect, you know, our own. And what we want to do is be challenged by people that have different views from us and have the ability to have a civil a civil discourse about why we disagree. And be open to the possibility that, you know, you might change your mind. That's fine. You know, you might change your mind, somebody or you might be able to change somebody else's mind. That's okay. We don't have to be rigidly um, stuck to our opinions or rigidly follow, you know, or agree with everything that a, a political party does. I mean, you might be a supporter of the conservative government, but not like certain policies of theirs. That's okay too, you know. So I think this, our, our kind of commitment to the singular truth, you know, is is dangerous. We can have a diversity of opinions, and we can still get along, um, on on other issues.
1: Where does fake news fit into all of this? I suppose what I'm trying to get at is. If you are constantly being told that news that doesn't agree with your point of view is fake, how can people get through that barrier and listen to what other people think?
0: Yeah, I think fake, this whole idea of fake news is really um, an important one at this moment in time and I think it's only going to get more important because, you know, we know that there are governments, there are agencies out there that are actively propagating um, false stories And the purpose of that is is to create divisions within our community, within our countries. And in division, within this division, it it causes like absolute chaos within a society. And that's what we're seeing in the US. I mean, we know from the last elections that, that, you know, a number of um, people based out of Russia, based out of other countries, were actively promoting... Um, false stories to create even more polarization within um, the United States, and and the aim of that was to ultimately, you know, have somebody elected that um, would serve the agenda of, of foreign governments. Uh, so we already see the real-life consequences of fake news and of people not being able to distinguish. Between what is accurate and what is not accurate, and I know there've been surveys done in in high schools where you know the majority of, of students surveyed could not distinguish between what was a, a reliable source of news and what was a fake and and false you know article, and so that's I think incredibly concerning. I know that there are some countries that have actually started educating their students in in school about how to distinguish between the two, you know, what is reliable and what is not reliable. And I think if it was up to me, I think every country in the world right now would be doing that for their students. Because if you don't have an educated population, if you don't have young people who graduate to being adults and voting adults, who are educated about what's happening in their country, then you can't expect them to make informed decisions about who they elect. And that kind of, that goes to the heart of democracy. So it's incredibly important.
1: Now to jump to the other side of all of this. What are some of the downfalls of people having too much trust in the media? Specifically in countries like China where much of the media is state sponsored, how does this affect the nation and perhaps even the world more broadly?
0: I mean it's really, you know every every country you know kind of creates a model and it's it's difficult for countries that are doing the the you know sometimes not so pleasant work of having a free press, um, having an educated, informed, critical and analytical public, you know, a lot of these countries that don't allow that, a lot of these governments that don't allow that in their country kind of point to all these problems in in democratic countries, you know, with protesters coming out onto the streets and say, look, we don't want those problems. Well, actually, if protesters, if people have the right, feel that they can be comfortable in going out onto the streets without facing repercussions from their government, without putting their lives in danger. That's a good thing, you know, and that's what people need to understand, that even though there is discord within a society and, and people are out on the streets protesting, it's actually a fantastic sign that that country is functioning as a democracy Whereas, you know, in places that don't allow that, where you don't have people out on the street, doesn't mean that people are satisfied with their government, that things are going really well. It just means that people are so terrified to voice their concerns, you know, that they, they can't peacefully go out and say, no, I don't agree with this. So, you know, I think people need to be critical in in how they view, you know, the, what's happening in their countries and understand that that protesting, that writing letters of complaint to their representative or even being able to approach their local government representative with grievances is a huge privilege and they're very lucky to have that even while they may disagree with, you know, whatever their government is is doing.
1: Absolutely. I don't think I've really thought about that before just appreciating how lucky we are to actually have that system of media. Nonetheless, I'm sure you would agree when I say that we shouldn't be complacent about our media. Throughout your career, has there been anything specifically in Australian media or international media that you see quite clearly needs to change?
0: In anywhere in the world, you can't necessarily be what you can't see And growing up in Australia, I didn't really see a lot of people, um, you know, from my kind of immigrant background reflected in in the media and in the entertainment field, definitely, Um, but even in the news media. So, you know, I remember growing up and people like Lee Lin Chin being around and Michelle Fonseca at the ABC and Indira and I do, of course, like really in my kind of community, Indian community in Melbourne, caused ripples because it was so refreshing and kind of amazing to see somebody who was dark skinned, had a you know, for want of a better name, an ethnic name. Um <laughs> And she was a a very popular newsreader. I mean, she was hugely popular within the Indian community I know um, in Melbourne growing up. But these names were few and far between. And certainly in the commercial channels, there was nobody. And what's really kind of sad about that is this was all happening 20 years ago. And, you know, I chose to leave Australia um, and try my luck elsewhere right after graduating, but even now, like 20 years later, things haven't progressed as quickly as they should have progressed. You know, I mean, 20 years is a long time, and we still have a country where the people that you see, the faces that you see walking down the street, are not at all reflected in the faces you see on television. And it's, it's like two different worlds, two different countries, you know, if you had never been to Australia and you just consumed, you know, Australian television, you would think we were a country of just really young Anglo-Saxon, mostly, you know, middle-class affluent men. Um, And we're not. We're so far from that, you know. So I think it's a shame that Australia hasn't progressed. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that women, um, people of colour are still not in decision-making senior roles in the news media. I mean, the fact is you hire people who reflect your worldview, who reflect you. So if you have middle-aged Anglo-Saxon men Largely in the boardrooms and in the hiring positions, they're going to hire a younger version of themselves, which is exactly what we've seen happen. Um, And so until we get more diverse senior people inside, you know, who are editors and editors-in-chief and managers, you're not going to see our faces. You're not going to see the faces of the majority of Australians reflected in the news media.
1: Do you think it's the responsibility of women, women of colour, to fight harder and work harder perhaps to get into these roles, even if it is unfair? Or do you think that that change needs to come from above?
0: I don't think there's a single answer to that. I don't think there's one thing that we can do to change that. It has to be everything. Um, I never had any problem with working harder. I was fine with that. I mean, I know a lot of people would argue, well, why should um, women and people of colour have to work harder for the same jobs, for the same pay? And, yeah, I mean, you can obviously, we shouldn't, but I've always viewed it as if I have to put in twice the effort to do what I do, it just means that I have twice the experience and I'm twice as better. At what I do than the person standing next to me. So it has never, you know, been a problem. I've never resented having to work hard for whatever success that I've had. But at the same time, the industry has to catch up. And the industry has to catch up for its own survival. This is the thing. You're not going to do me a favor or you're not going to do, you know, the next woman or the next person from a Sri Lankan background or you know, Egyptian background a favor by hiring them, you're doing it for your own survival because the more you alienate audiences by not reflecting them, the more your audience is going to alienate you. And so if you want to be relevant to an Australian audience, if you want to get the ratings and get the advertising dollars, then you better step up and better represent your audience.
1: Do you have a particular story from your career that shows that maybe women actually are advantaged in some situations when it comes to international reporting?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a particular story, but every time, for example, I go to Afghanistan and report on a story, you know, I've been covering the country for 13 years, and, yes, it's a very dangerous country and it tends to attract, you know, war correspondents, war photographers, who tend to be large, you know, by and large men, um, I always found it a massive benefit being a woman in that country because as a woman, I was considered very much to be almost, as a foreign woman, I was considered very much to be a third gender. Um, not only would I get access to uh, women to hear their stories, I would, you know readily be granted admissions into homes into hospital wards um into also you know shelters which a male reporter would never have been granted and hasn't been granted access to um but also i would get access to the men the men were you know i was a kind of a curiosity to them because in their own culture they're not allowed to speak with women who are not members of their family they're not allowed to be in a room with them and interact with them. And so not only was I able to get access to men, be it politicians, soldiers, policemen, NGOs, just normal family guys, um, I would also get access to more than 50% of the population, which is women in Afghanistan, that my male peers were not able to have anything to do with, which is extraordinary. It's extraordinary to be covering a country, and you literally cannot speak with more than fifty percent of the population. And so, as a woman, I always found it a huge advantage covering that country. And I'm sure other female reporters who cover, you know, countries in the Middle East um, and elsewhere, they they have similar experiences. So I, to be honest, was very grateful for my gender to be able to do the job that that I do there.
1: Karishma, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure discussing all of this with you. I'd like to ask you one last question. If you could go back to 12 year old Karishma, what would you tell her? Would you do anything differently?
0: Um, I don't know. I mean, I think if I changed anything about my experience, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. And I'm pretty happy with where I am. I mean, I still have a lot of goals and ambitions and things that I want to achieve going forward. But, you know, I think maybe I would just advise her not to be so worried, you know, to, to not worry about the chances that I was taking, the risks I was taking, because in the end it, it works out.